Uh, tonight, we're going to be looking at uh, Proverbs 29:25. We'll read the text here in just a few moments, but let me, uh, let me first uh, give an anecdote. Television or movie adaptation of Baroness Emma Orksey's novel, The Scarlet Pimpernel. Scarlet Pimpernel tells the story of an English nobleman named Sir Percy Blankney and his league of uh, English gentlemen who were rescuing members of the French aristocracy who were condemned to the guillotine during uh, the reign of terror in the French Revolution. And in order to get the job done, in order to rent, rescue these French aristocrats, Sir Percy and his associates had to carry out their activities in secret. They would use disguise and sometimes make themselves appear so ridiculous that no one would ever suspect that they were actually involved in such daring and dangerous work. And, and so in this particular uh, adaptation of the story, Sir Percy was describing the situation to his men this way. He said, if we are to succeed, we must maintain our anonymity, mask our identities, even if it means suffering the mockery of others, being taken for fools, fops, nitwits, even cowards. Sir Percy and his men were willing to have others think poorly of them because they knew that they had a greater cause to serve. They were willing to regard the poor opinion of others simply as part of the price that had to be paid in order for them to do the right thing. Now, how much more should that be the case for those of us who are believers in Christ? We should be willing to say, in the words of John Newton's hymn, let the world deride or pity I will glory in thy name. Unfortunately, we often have a certain fear that prevents us from living in such a bold and decided fashion. It is called the fear of man. And Solomon tells us about this fear of man in our text tonight here in Proverbs 29.25. Solomon writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and this is what he tells us. He says, the fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Now, these words are quite simple, quite simple, but nevertheless extremely profound. And if by God's grace we can understand these few words and faithfully live them out, then we will be moving forward on the road of Christian discipleship. We'll be showing ourselves wise according to God's standard of wisdom. That is because it is the fear of the Lord, not the fear of man, that is wisdom. Fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. And so we'll try to approach this verse tonight by asking a series of questions. First of all, what is it? What is this fear of man against which we are warned? Secondly, how does it bring a snare? Thirdly, how do we fall into the trap? Fourthly, how can we avoid the trap? So, what is this fear of man? How does it bring a snare? How do we fall into the trap? How do we avoid the trap? So, first of all, what is it? What is this thing called the fear of man? I think the definition given by Matthew Poole was helpful when he described it as an inordinate fear of harm or mischief from men, which is fitly opposed to trust in God because it comes from a distrust 
of God's promise and providence. It is this inordinate fear of harm or mischief from men. We fear what people will do to us because we're not trusting God's promises towards us, because we're not trusting in God's providence, his governance over all things. It is the fear that if we don't please someone else, we may place ourselves in harm's way because they'll be out to get us. And I might add that this fear of man also includes the fear of someone else's bad opinion. The fear of man can take the form of a disproportionate desire to be liked, to have others think well of you. And I think that in our context here, 21st century America, the fear of being disliked, the fear of being misunderstood, the fear of being laughed at, the fear of being thought weird, unkind, intolerant, are probably usually greater dangers that we face on a day-to-day basis than any actual bodily harm coming to us, right? Bodily harm for a profession of Christ is pretty rare here in, in our context. Now, other places in the world, this is, this is clear and present danger. But for the most part, at this point anyways, uh, faithful living for Christ is not, not going to get us bludgeoned over the head, usually. But nevertheless, fear of man is still a snare. And I can say that this is personally an area of struggle for me because can't say for you, but I want people to like me. I really do. I want to get along with people. Some people seem to enjoy having friction and, and fights. I do not. I don't, I don't like that. Don't want it. And so I want people to like me. And what this can then morph into for me is that in trying to get along with people, sometimes that can lead to taking the path of of least resistance, and therefore that makes me a perfect candidate to fall into this trap of fear of man. And maybe I'm not the only one who struggles in that way. And God knows our sinful hearts. God knows our tendencies to fear man. That's why he gave us a verse like this, Proverbs 29, 25, to warn us that this thing is a snare. So we've seen what it is. So how is it a snare? Well, I think Matthew Poole was helpful again when he said that this is an occasion of many sins and of great danger, both of injuries from men and of sore punishments from God. When we fear man or when our main motivation for how we are going to conduct ourselves is based on trying to have everyone think well of us or when our highest priority is saving our own neck instead of honoring God, we're setting ourselves up for a fall. When we've made pleasing man the standard by which we will conduct ourselves, we have decided that pleasing God isn't going to be the main factor that influences the way that we make decisions from day to day. And so if we start there, if we start the the fact that God's glory is not the main thing influencing us, but rather the opinion of other people, if that's our starting point, then the ending point is not going to be good. It's not going to end well if our starting point is that we don't care so much about honoring God, we care about what other people think. So that's how it is a snare. It, this is what leads us into sin, because ultimately we're not taking God as, our, as the one who will dictate what we're going to do. And so we've seen what the sphere of man is. We've seen how it's a trap. How is it then that we fall into the trap? 
I think we could say broadly that we fall into the trap far too often because our perspectives are limited to the horizons of this world. We're not, we're not looking far enough outward. We're, we're looking at the world as if this is all that there is. We fall into the trap far too often because we are walking by sight and not by faith. We value the approval of man whom we can see more than the approval of God whom we cannot see. We fear the disapproval of men more than we fear the disapproval of God. And so our priorities and our perspectives are misaligned with true reality. And we see this exemplified for us again and again in scriptures. We, we see it in the history of Abraham. So think of when Abraham told Sarah to say that she was his sister instead of his wife. Why did he do that? Well, he did it because he was afraid that they were going to kill him because of his beautiful wife. And so in order to save his own neck on two different occasions, he uh, does the same trick. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, Genesis 12, Abimelech, king of Gibrar, Genesis 20. And then Isaac, with the same fear, does the same thing in Genesis 26. They were worried about their own physical safety, fearful of what men would do to them. And so they decided to sin rather than to obey God and trust that God would take care of them as they obeyed him. This is why Peter denied his Lord three times on the night of our Lord's betrayal was because he was more fearful about the verdict of men, the verdict of those in the courtyard of Caiaphas, than he was concerned about the verdict of God. Perhaps a little bit closer to home for us in our context is the attitude and actions of those uh, Jewish leaders in the days of Christ who believed in him and yet refused to openly confess their faith. We read about those in our opening reading from John 12. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. These were men who were not so much afraid of being killed or physically harmed, so much as they were fearful of the social consequences of confessing Christ. We're told that they believed in Jesus. To some extent, they, they believed that he was the Messiah. But nevertheless, they kept this belief on the down low because it wasn't considered acceptable in the circles in which they ran. Being part of the synagogue was understandably very important to them. By their deeds, they demonstrated that it was more important to them to remain in good standing with the synagogue than it was to confess their belief that Jesus was the Messiah. They loved the approval of man more than the approval of God. And this is similar to uh, the case of Peter in Galatians chapter 2, his compromise with the Judaizers. According to Galatians 2.12, he stopped eating with the Gentiles because he was fearing the party of the circumcision. He got scared of these certain men who had come from James, and he's like, oh, well, can't eat with the Gentiles anymore. It's fear of man that led Peter to that sinful compromise. And so we've seen some scriptural examples of how this fear of man plays itself out. And what about us? How does it play itself out in our lives? In what particular areas are you motivated more by the opinions of others than by the glory of God? Well, for some of us, maybe this plays out in our evangelism or or lack of evangelism, as the case may be. We don't want friends, neighbors, co-workers, family members, and strangers to think that we're strange. So we try to blend in with the crowd. We fear 
their opinions, or their rejection. So we fail to tell them the good news about Christ. Jesus said that if we confess him before men, he will, uh, that if we confess him before men, he will confess us before his Father. But to our shame, sometimes we fear men more than the Son of God, and we refuse to confess him. May God have mercy on us for when we have done that, myself included. For some of us, the fear of man ensnares us by conforming us to the ways of the world. Again, we don't want to be thought of as odd or strange, and so when we're with someone else or with a group of people who are engaged in something that's maybe a little questionable or perhaps outright sinful, maybe we join in instead of saying, no, we're not going to do that because it's not right. We're following after Christ. Shouldn't it be rather a badge of honor for us to say, I follow Christ, I can't do that, than to go ahead and run with the crowd? Sometimes we're more afraid of displeasing our friends or family or those whom we want to be our friends than we are of displeasing Christ. For some of us, fear of man may take a slightly different form. We might call this the analysis to paralysis form. This form is is more subtle than, than some of these others that we've mentioned because it doesn't lead us necessarily to fail to confess Christ or to commit outward sin or something of that nature, but it can make us miserable simply because we're placing too much of a focus on what other people will think of us. And in this form, we can be particularly liable to fear what our fellow Christians may think of us. This form of the fear of man asks the question, what will people at church think of me if I do whatever? Fill in the blank. What will they think of me if I choose this educational option for my kids? What will they think of me if... I do that. What will they think of me if I don't have time to make something for the Iwana party and so I go to Costco and bring something and put it on the table? What, what will they think of me if I, if I do that? What will they think of me if my kids have to stay in the nursery longer than some other family's kids because my kids are, haven't mastered the art of sitting through a church service yet? What will they think of me if? This form can be subtle because the fear is not necessarily going to drive you to commit some outward, clearly recognizable sin. But nevertheless, this fear of man, it is fear of man, and it makes us miserable because we're so scared that someone is going to look at something in our lives and view it with suspicion as a shortcoming and think less of us as a result. And we can experience these kinds of fears with fellow church members, with family members, and with other people. And in matters like these that are so much dependent on one's situation in life and simply trying to make the best decision that we can given all of the circumstances that we are facing in our context, we need to try to use practical wisdom, let ourselves be informed by, by Scripture, maybe seek advice, and then just make the best decision that we can and roll with it and not, not get worked up about what everyone else is going to think about the decision that we make. Right? These are, these are small things. Doesn't matter if you have to uh, if you have to go to Costco to buy something for a church fellowship. Nobody's going to care. They might actually love what you bought at Costco. It'll be all right. So don't don't worry about it, right? And so these things, uh, even these smaller and subtle forms, can can be a snare because it puts us in bondage, right? And just bondage to to worrying about what other people think. God has called us to live in in freedom, and so. We've seen what it is, we've seen how it's a trap, we've seen some of the ways that we can fall into a trap. Now, how do we avoid 
this snare of the fear of man. How do we avoid the trap? Now, on the one hand, the the answer to the question is very easy. It is, in fact, in the verse in front of us. The fear of man brings a snare, but then comes the contrast. He who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. And so you see see the contrast. The fear of man is juxtaposed with the the trust in the Lord. They are opposite to one another. And so what this means is that the antidote to fearing man is trusting the Lord. Now, on the one hand, this is, this is a very easy concept. Clear, clear and easy. Fear of man, trusting in the Lord. These are opposites. We don't want to do the fear of man. We want to trust in the Lord. Let's do that. But the problem is actually putting this into practice, right? So then how do we, how do, we do it? How do we actually live this out? Well, for starters, we have to, to adjust our perspective on reality, right? This is, this is part of... Part of the problem with the fear of man is that it is a skewed perspective. We're looking at the horizons of this world rather than looking toward eternity. And we're told of Moses in Hebrews 11:27 that by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. That's how Moses endured and didn't fear the wrath of the king. Pharaoh could have sent and hunted him down and, uh, and killed him, but... Moses left Egypt by faith, not fearing Pharaoh. How did he do it? Because he endured as seeing him who is unseen. And this, of course, is how all of the saints in Hebrews 11 and all of the saints through all time have escaped this trap of the fear of man is by seeing him who is unseen. They recognize the truth that Paul expresses in 2 Corinthians 4.18 when he says that the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. This is how the trap is overcome, by having a true perspective of what true reality actually is. In biblical terms, this is called walking by faith and not by sight. Or as Jesus put it in Luke chapter 12, this means that we don't fear the one who can kill the body, and after that can do nothing more to us. Instead, we fear the one who, after has killed our body, has the authority to cast us into hell. We fear God with whom judgment resides. This takes guts, and this takes an alternative perspective, and the grace of God to put this kind of trust in the Lord into practice instead of fearing man. Now, one such man who escaped from the trap was a man named Edmund Grindel. Grindel was the, uh, the second Archbishop of Canterbury in the days of uh, Queen Elizabeth I of England. And in 1576, the Queen ordered Grindel to suppress an exercise that were known as the prophesyings. Now, uh, in our terms, we would more likely call them preachings, for that is what they were. And essentially, what would happen is that on a, on a given day, perhaps a market day in a town, a few sermons would be preached uh, by some of the pastors of the, the Church of England before an audience of laymen. And then uh, there would be two or three of the, the more senior ministers who would serve as moderators. And after the sermons, the, the ministers would retire together for kind of a service review and talk about the sermons and try to give some tips to these younger preachers so that they could develop their preaching a little bit more and have a meal together. Queen Elizabeth was not too thrilled at these proceedings, and so she ordered the Archbishop of Canterbury, Edmund Grindle, to circulate an order for their suppression. Tell the preachers to cut it out. No more of this. And Grindle said in good conscience he could not comply with that order. 
he felt that there needed to be more preaching in the church and not less. And so in December of 1576, he wrote a letter to the queen uh, stating his reasons. Let me read you just a small portion of what he wrote. He said, I am forced with all humility and yet plainly to profess that I cannot with safe conscience and without offense to the majesty of God give my assent to the suppressing of the said exercises. Much less can I send out any injunction for the utter and universal subversion of the same. I would say with St. Paul, I have no power to destroy, but only to edify. And with the same apostle, I can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. Bear with me, I beseech you, madam, if I choose rather to offend your earthly majesty than to offend the heavenly majesty of God. Grenoble was willing, if need be, to get kicked out of his office as archbishop. He's, he basically said, Queen, you essentially made me archbishop. You can, you can remove me from office if you need be, but I'm not doing this. And uh, for one reason or another, I think this was probably involved. There was some other intrigue, I think, going on behind the scenes. But, but ultimately, she put him under house arrest, and he basically couldn't do anything else as archbishop until he died uh, about six or seven years later. Uh, but the point is, is that it takes guts fear God more than man. And sometimes you have to draw a line in the sand and say, I can't do what you're asking me to do. I can't do what you're expecting me to do. I fear God and not man. I'm trusting in God, and therefore I'm not going to worry about what you are going to do. And the point is, is that we can't approach this from an earthly perspective. The earthly perspective, if we're limited to the horizons of this world, is only going to lead us into sin. We need this eternal perspective if we're going to honor God. Our text directs us toward such a view, toward trusting in God when it tells us that he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Now sometimes that exaltation may take place here on earth. Most times it will not. Most times the exaltation will not take place here on this earth. And we have to wait until the day when our Lord says, well done, good and faithful servant enter into the joy of your master. So may God help us and strengthen us that we may trust in him and walk with him and live for him in such a way as to avoid this snare of the fear of man. Please pray with me. Father, we know that this is a verse that speaks to us as individuals, personally. Lord, we far too often fear other people rather than you. We're worried about them and we're not trusting you. Lord, we recognize that this is wrong and we pray that you would help us. Lord, we ask that you would turn our sights from the horizons of this world uh, up to eternity, that we might trust in you, that we might serve you, that we might love you and live for you faithfully. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.